Uh, it's good to be here this morning. It's good to see you. Glad you're here. You're an encouragement to me. And uh, hopefully what I've prepared this morning will be an encouragement to you, uh, beneficial to you, edifying to you. Uh, as Brother Jonathan mentioned, the title of my sermon this morning is Out of Egypt. And this is an idea that I've, I've had um, for a little while. It's been on my sermon idea list. But it wasn't the sermon I was preparing to preach a week ago. Uh, but then Brother Levi got up and uh, preached about um, the birth of Jesus, the star of Bethlehem, and he pretty much stopped right before the passage that this sermon is based upon. So I thought, you know, there's probably not a better time to do this sermon and to put this together. It just flows right on with uh, the previous sermon that Levi gave last Sunday. Uh, but we will look at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15. Uh, but I want to start in verse 13. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. So this is around the birth of Jesus. Um, the star shone, the, the wise men came, the shepherds came and worshipped Jesus. Uh, but then there's a, I guess, a, a bad guy in this uh, story and in, in this true, you know, historical event, King Herod. So we'll talk about him. Uh, but starting at verse 13, we have the family of Jesus. It says, When they departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child Jesus and his mother and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod, um, the king of, of Judea at the time, will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, uh, Joseph, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet Hosea, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son." So I want to focus on this passage because this is not something I've focused on before. Uh, it's not something we talk about too much. Um, the event of Jesus going to Egypt, Jesus and his family. And a lot of historians, uh, biblical scholars think that Jesus was there probably around two to four years. So they lived in, Jesus, uh, they lived in Egypt uh, for probably a couple years in the early part of Jesus' life. And then in verse 15 it says, this was divine providence. This fulfilled a prophecy. There was something in the Old Testament, in the book of Hosea, the, uh, the prophet Hosea spoke these words, out of Egypt have I called my son. And this was a prophecy of Jesus. Now that prophecy had double meaning. If you read Hosea chapter 11, um, I guess the surface meaning is, is God's talking about his love for the Israelites and his love for uh, his son or, you know, the Israelites being his people, God's people, and he called them out of Egypt, and we'll talk about that event. But it, its double meaning is that of Jesus, because Jesus came out of Egypt to go back to the promised land, to the land of Israel, and uh, so we'll talk about that as well. So what's the significance of this prophecy? It, when you first read it, it seems kind of odd. You know, when I first read it, I thought, okay, he came out of Egypt like the Israelites did. You know, why, why is that a prophecy of Jesus? 
Why is that important? That's what I'm going to try and answer this morning, uh, why this is significant, the significance of Jesus coming out of Egypt in that prophecy. So I want to compare Jesus's um, events, our account of coming out of Egypt, the events that followed after, and I want to compare that to the Israelites and how the Israelites came out of Egypt as well. The, uh, the first thing I want to compare with those two accounts is that of the Exodus, so the beginning of, of both stories. Now, if you go back to uh, thousands of years ago, the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, and you, you remember that story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, uh, the account of the Exodus and the account of Jesus starts very in a very similar way. It starts with murderous kings. Now, we just read about Jesus and how Jesus fled to Egypt, or Joseph took his family, took Jesus to Egypt, because of a murderous king, King Herod, wanted to kill Jesus. And so King Herod, in an attempt to kill Jesus, does this in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth or angry, and sent forth and slew or killed all the children that were in Bethlehem. And in all the coasts there are from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Herod wanted to kill Jesus because he was afraid of him. He was um, threatened by him and his power. And he wanted to kill this baby Jesus. And so in an attempt to do that, he sent out a decree to kill all the children that were born in Bethlehem, two years old and under. But God was protecting Jesus and his family. And they fled to Egypt for that reason, to escape this murderous king. Well, the Exodus story happens the same way. There's a murderous king, Pharaoh, who wants to kill all the male children to control the population. He was threatened by God's people. And so he sent out a decree back in the story of the Exodus to kill all the male children. And that's what happened. But one, at least one child escaped. And we know that to be Moses. So Moses, like Jesus, escaped that decree by the providence of God. So they start out in a very similar way. That's one similarity at the very beginning of this story, the story of the Exodus and Jesus. Another uh, aspect that I want to focus on is Egypt. What does Egypt represent in these accounts? Well, I think Egypt represents a place of sin and slavery. And that's certainly true in the time of the Exodus. Um, Moses points this out uh, just to show you how far away from God the Egyptian lifestyle was. Moses is in his discourse with Pharaoh trying to get the people out of Egypt. When he's talking to Pharaoh, Moses says this. Moses said it would not be right to do so, talking about worshiping God in Egypt. It would not be right to do so for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? So Moses says to Pharaoh, we can't worship God in this place. Because if we worship God in the land of Egypt, it's an abomination to you and to your society. And your Egyptians will try and stone us. That's how anti-God Egypt was. And if you read about Egypt and study um, their religion and their society... They had multiple gods, they worshipped many different gods, and they were very anti the one true God. And certainly Pharaoh was that way as well. So Egypt was a place of sin 
a place of worldliness, and it was also a place of slavery. Now, I think Egypt represents the world, in a sense, a world without God, and that's how that applies to us today. 1 John 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, sin, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, Egypt is a representation of a world without God. And so when we today live in worldliness, it's like we're living in Egypt, a place without God, a place of idolatry, a place of sin, a place of fulfilling the desires, uh, the lust of our flesh. And you know, I think about the, the history of the Israelites going to Egypt, and when they initially went there, it was a great thing for them. And I'm not saying it was wrong that they went there and it was God's plan for them to go there. Joseph brought the family of Israel to Egypt and it was uh, a place where they could find food. They could find things that would sustain them. It was a good thing for them to go there and they, they found good things and they found sustenance for them. But over time, it became a bad place for them. It became a place of sin and they became enslaved to the Egyptians. How similar is that to living in the world? How similar is that to sin? Sin offers something that is pleasurable to us, that we desire, and maybe we find some satisfaction in that initially, but the, over time, that sin turned into a place of slavery, a place of despair, a place where we're crying out to God, crying out to save us from the consequences of our sin. That's what happens to us when we try and live a worldly life in a place without God. And I can tell you that's true in my case. When I followed worldliness, worldly pursuits are followed after sin. Initially, I'm not thinking about the consequences. I'm thinking about the good things I can get out of it, the pleasure, the satisfaction, but those things are fleeting. And after I indulge in those things or follow those things, it leaves me empty it leaves me wanting and needing more, and I'm in a place of despair facing the guilt and consequence of following after sinful or worldly things. That's what Egypt was for the Israelites over time. If you, in that history of the Israelites being there is a representation of that, perhaps. John 8, verse 34, talks about slavery. Now, as I mentioned, the Israelites were enslaved uh, by the Egyptians over time, and that, that was a physical thing that happened to them. But Jesus explains that there is a slavery that's far worse than any physical slavery. And he explains that in John 8, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. When we practice sin and follow after it, we want more of it, because, especially addictive type sins. Because we want that initial satisfaction, it becomes something that becomes a habit for us. Maybe it's a, a lie we told, and so um, we keep telling more lies to cover up the initial sin that we committed in telling the first lie. And we just dig a deeper and deeper hole for ourselves, and we become enslaved to our sin 
to a point where we need help to get out of that sin. Sin is a slavery that we must free ourselves from. And it's far worse than any physical slavery or physical despair we could find. It's a spiritual slavery. And we need to recognize that's what sin is. And it's a snare and a trap. And we need to be freed from it. And we'll talk about how we get freed from that sin and slavery. Exodus 2 verse 23 shows the despair of the Israelites and their slavery. In this verse it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. They were in such despair, they were burdened so much by Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they were crying out to God, Help me, God. Free me from this slavery. I need you. They groaned and cried out to God, and God heard them. God heard their cries. And that brings me to the next point. God sent them someone to help free them from their slavery. And that person at that time of the Exodus was Moses. God sent them Moses to free them from the burden of slavery. They cried out to God, and God answered their cries and gave them Moses to deliver them from Egypt. Moses is a foreshadowing, foreshadowing of Jesus, an antitype of Jesus. Jesus uh, could be called a new Moses. And I think there's a lot of uh, comparisons made in the New Testament between Jesus and Moses. And we'll read some of that. The first way I think Jesus and Moses are similar is they were both mediators between God and God's people. Moses was a mediator. He was a mouthpiece. He was someone who stood in the middle, an advocate um, for the people to God. And he delivered God's law to the people. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 tells us Jesus is a mediator. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus today is our mediator. He's the ultimate mediator, the ultimate advocate who stands before us, stands before God and advocates for us and allows us to be free from our guilt of sin. He mediates between God and ourselves. That's our true mediator, just like Moses physically at the time of the Exodus was a mediator. Galatians 3 verse 19 talks about both Moses and Jesus. Here, uh, Paul writing to the Galatians, uh, the churches in Galatia, he's describing the purpose of the old law, the Mosaical law, and he says, Wherefore then serveth the law? What was the purpose of the Old Testament law? It was added because of transgressions. To tell the people what is right and what is wrong. To define sin. Until the seed or the descendant should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So here, though it doesn't mention that my name, it mentions, it refers to both Moses and Jesus. Because Jesus was that seed. Paul says the law was, was given until the seed, the descendant would come, Jesus would come, who would fulfill the law and bring in the new covenant. He was the one who fulfilled the promise given to Abraham. Jesus was that seed. And the law was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator, and that's Moses. So God delivered um, the law to Moses, the mediator who wrote it down. So in this verse, we see Jesus and Moses talked about. Jesus fulfilled all that Moses instituted with the old law. He fulfilled it all. He completed it. 
And he brought in the new covenant. And that was always God's plan. So Moses was a mediator and so was Jesus. Moses was also a deliverer and so is Jesus. We remember Moses delivered the people out of Egypt. He stood before Pharaoh and he said, he and Aaron said, let my people go. He did as God asked him to do. And eventually, finally, Pharaoh relented and let the people go. And Moses delivered them out of Egypt. Jesus is also our deliverer today. If we back up a few verses, we already read verse 34. But if you back up a few verses, Jesus is talking to the Jews. It says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, Jesus' word, you are truly my disciples, my followers, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone, which isn't true. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So Jesus says, if you abide in my word and my truth, you'll be set free. And the Jews said, free? We don't need to be set free. We are free. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Though they were, but they said, we've never been enslaved to anyone. We don't need freedom. And Jesus says, yes, you do need freedom. You need freedom from the slavery of sin. And that's what we all need freedom from. And we've all been enslaved to sin, and we need that freedom. We need to recognize We need that freedom. More than anything, we need to be set free from the the slavery of sin. Jesus gives us that um, way out. He is our deliverer. His word and his truth will set us free. So Jesus is our deliverer today and has always been the deliverer of mankind. Now, one thing I want to point out is that Jesus is not just Moses 2.0. He's not just uh, another Moses that has come. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate mediator. Jesus is the Lord of Moses. Jesus is the one Moses looked forward to. Moses just foreshadowed the ultimate deliverer, and that was Jesus. And you can see that in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where Moses prophesies of Jesus himself. He says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. And this is very widely believed to be a prophecy of Jesus. Moses says to the people, there's going to come a prophet someday that will rise up from our descendants, our family, and he's going to be similar to me, but you need to listen to him. You need to listen to this prophet that's going to rise up someday. Moses knew there was a greater one coming. The ultimate prophet, the ultimate deliverer, and that was Jesus. Hebrews 3 verse 3 also explains or gives a comparison of Jesus to Moses. And and really there's a lot of context here in the, the following verses, in the preceding verses that compare Jesus to Moses. But it says this in verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So Moses... Our creation is the house itself, but Jesus is the builder of the house. He's the creator. He created it all. So he's the ultimate deliverer, savior, mediator, advocate. He is the Lord, the Lord of Moses, and he is the one we need to follow. So Jesus is the ultimate Moses in a sense. 
the ultimate deliverer and mediator for us. So this is the first way uh, I think that the account of, of Jesus coming out of Egypt is significant and fulfills all the events and prophecies of the past of the Exodus account and how the Israelites came out of Egypt and Moses came and delivered them. Egypt, a place of sin and slavery, murderous kings. Moses delivered them. Jesus delivers us today out of sin and slavery. So that's the first way I think these accounts are similar. Now I want to go back to uh, the story of, of, of Jesus. And I want to go into chapter 3. Because I think the comparisons just continue from there. So in, in chapter 2, they had fled to Egypt. Um, Joseph and his family, and they were there perhaps a couple years. Then the angel of the Lord comes back to Joseph and says, uh, Herod has died, so you can return to the land of Israel. And so they do that. They return, they end up in uh, uh, Nazareth, in the region of Galilee. Jesus grows up, and about the age of 30 is uh, where we find him in Matthew chapter 3. So Matthew chapter 3 starts out talking about John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. It says, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he began to baptize people in the river Jordan. And so you can read um, the in-between verses there. He talks to the Pharisees and says, you're not worthy to be baptized. But he's baptizing all these people in the river Jordan. And then verse 13, it says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him or, or resisted, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and you're coming to me. Jesus answered, saying unto him, Suffer it to be so now, allow it to happen. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And, and John baptized Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descended upon the head of Jesus. And God, the Father, spoke through the sky and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is a significant event in the um, life of Jesus. So we see around the age 30, Jesus comes to John, and, and John resists and says, you know, I'm, I'm not worthy to baptize you. You, you, uh, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus says, no, we need to do this. I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And that's um, a somewhat difficult uh, phrase to answer. The, all the reasons why Jesus would baptize, we know that it's not in a similar way we are in terms of uh, repenting of sin and washing away sin. Jesus had no sin. But I believe there's a couple reasons why. Uh, one, it's to uh, be an example uh, for us that we are to be baptized and to follow that example. But also I believe there's um, a lot of significance to baptism itself. And there's a reason why Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his ministry. You see, this is at the beginning of his three and a half year ministry where he's going to go to the next phase of his mission and he's going to travel around all of, of Israel and Judea and he's going to preach that the kingdom is at hand and he's going to bring in the new covenant and ultimately it will end with his death bringing in the new covenant, the testament and his sacrifice upon the cross. That's about to happen. But at the beginning of that three and a half year mission and phase of his life, he was baptized. And I think there's a significance to that. And it's, it's similar to what happens with us. It's, it's the beginning of our journey when we're baptized. You see, I think, or I believe it's taught, baptism is an initiation into something. 
Baptism literally means immersion. We're immersed into something, and then we start a new phase of our life. That's what happens when we're baptized. It's the beginning of our journey, of our mission. We start a new phase of our life. We, we begin life anew, and we are spiritually reborn. We're initiated and born into Christ, immersed into Christ, and we live the rest of our life uh, faithful to him, as, uh, or we should, for the rest of our life. So, I believe there's certainly a significance to Jesus being baptized here at the start of his journey and not just baptized at some random point in his mission because there's a reason it was at uh, the start of his, his missionary journey. Um, so, it's a, it's a start of a new phase. He's uh, baptized to fulfill all righteousness. How does that relate to the, um, our prophecy that out of Egypt... God called the Israelites. What's the relationship there? How does that relate back to the Exodus story? The way I want to relate it, and I think it relates, is that of the Red Sea. When the Israelites pass through the Red Sea into the wilderness. I believe that's a similarity and perhaps a foreshadowing of baptism. And um, we'll talk about why. Uh, Exodus 14, verse 21, I want to go ahead and read the account of them passing through the Red Sea. So here, Moses had finally got the people out of Egypt uh, after Pharaoh kept changing his mind and saying, well, I'll let you go for a little bit, but then he said, no, don't go. And all the ten plagues happened. Finally, Pharaoh's son dies, and he says, you need to go, get out of here. They left. They flee out of the region of Egypt. But again, Pharaoh changes his mind and sees them gone and wants them back, and so he takes all of his army and, and pursues them into the wilderness. That's where we're at right here. They're, the Egyptian army's pursuing the Israelites. They start to panic, and they say, well, what do we do now? We should have stayed in Egypt. And they're um, up against the Red Sea, so they're trapped. There's this great sea, and the army's coming up to them, so they're trapped between the army and the sea. This is what God does for them. Exodus 14, verse 21, And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by, by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst, the middle of the sea, upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued them, and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Continue reading on down to verse 27. The Israelites continued to pass through the Red Sea. They were nearing the other side. And then it says in verse 27, Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, so he looks back over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. So all the Egyptians had followed them into the sea, and then Moses threw up his hands, the sea went back, and it covered the Egyptians. The waters returned, it says in verse 28, the waters returned, covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. So that's the account of the Israelites passing through the Red Sea. So how does that relate to baptism? 
to Jesus' baptism, to our baptism? How does that relate to those uh, uh, two accounts? Well, the one way I think they relate is when uh, the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, they were committed. They were fully committed. They were committed to Moses. You can see them singing afterwards, singing songs, and they st- uh, think the women start to uh, dance or play music. Uh, they're happy. They're committed. They start a new phase of their life. And they made a commitment to Moses in doing so. Because Egypt's gone. Egypt's behind them. The Red Sea divides them. And they're starting this new journey. And now they're looking to Moses. You're our leader. We're in a place of wilderness. Lead us to the promised land. And they made a commitment to Moses when they passed through the Red Sea. In 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 4... It talks about the concept of, of the sea and being baptized in the Red Sea. It says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud, the cloud being God who would lead them in the wilderness with a great pillar of cloud. And they all passed through the sea. Verse 2, And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You see, here it describes them passing through the Red Sea as a baptism. It says they were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So what does that mean? Baptized into the Moses, into Moses. Well, like we talked about, baptism is an immersion, and I think it's also a commitment. They were baptized and immersed unto Moses and what he represented. And how Moses represented God. So really God through Moses. But they were committed to Moses being God's mediator when they passed through the sea. They were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. So it was a commitment to Moses. And certainly it's true when we're baptized, we're making a commitment. And we're committing to Jesus. And when you read the, the phrase of baptism in the New Testament, we're baptized into Jesus. We're making that commitment to Jesus being our ultimate Lord and Savior who will save us. So it's a commitment to Moses. Also, their passing through the Red Sea represented a burial of their past life. As we read, when they passed through the Red Sea, they all looked at the sea and all the dead Egyptians um, drifted up on the seashore. And they saw the death of the Egyptians, those that were enslaving him. Isn't that true with our baptism? When we're baptized into Christ, uh, it, uh, in Romans 6, we'll just go ahead and read it. Romans 6, verse 4. It says, Therefore we are buried with him, Jesus, by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. When the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, that was the final moment where they finally put Egypt behind them. And they had passed on from Egypt. They were finally let go. And it was a struggle for them to get there. It was a struggle for them to get to that moment. It took a lot of steps, a lot of urging, a lot of back and forth between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, the ten plagues. But finally, that 
And that moment of passing through the Red Sea, that was the moment where they could put Egypt behind them. And they saw the Egyptians had died in the Red Sea. That is very similar to our baptism. When we're baptized, there's a death that happens. And that death is the old man of sin. That body of sin might be destroyed, it says. That old man is crucified with him. And we put to death our past life. And we see the death behind us and we move forward. And we move on, renewed and refreshed. And we move on into the next phase of our life. There's certainly a similarity there between what happened uh, with the Israelites. Verse 7 says, He that is dead is freed from sin, from the slavery of sin, like they were freed from the slavery of the Egyptians. So it's a burial of past life, and it's a commitment to Moses. Uh, so I believe the Red Sea perhaps represents baptism. Jesus was baptized, uh, and it was, I believe, a rep uh, an important event to, to show that he's committed to this mission. He's starting the next phase of his life and his mission. It was initiation into that. Um, so the Red Sea is similar to what happened with Jesus. But now I want to look at one more similarity between the, the uh, Exodus story, uh, the Israelites coming out of Egypt, and uh, Jesus. And it, it's in the next chapter of Matthew. So this is chapter 4 of Matthew. And this is right after Jesus was baptized. We'll see what happened. It says, Then Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So what did Jesus do right after he was baptized? Matthew chapter 4, the very next verse, he went into the wilderness. And it says he was in the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And he was there 40 days and 40 nights. And then we see, if you continue reading in, in the rest of this chapter, you see the devil, the tempter, tempting Jesus in various ways. And Jesus never gives in to that temptation. He's victorious over every temptation. He's triumphant. And he goes from that place of victor over the devil. But he was in the wilderness. Isn't that exactly what happened with the Israelites? They passed through the Red Sea. Then where were they? They were in the wilderness. Not only were they in the wilderness, they were in the wilderness 40 years. Like Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days. And the number 40 has significance there as well. What happened to them in the wilderness? Here's the map of, of them going into the wilderness. So here's Egypt. They're passed through the Red Sea now. And now they're in this place of the wilderness. And it's a place of wandering. And a place also of temptation. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. So were the Israelites. You see, baptism is the start of our journey. It's not the end of our journey. It's just the start of our journey. And after we're baptized, we enter the wilderness. We enter a new place in our life. Jesus is our deliverer. He's leading us through this wilderness. But it's not the end of the journey. It's not the promised land. And when the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, they were not done. They were not in the promised land. They were in the wilderness. A new place, an open place they hadn't been before. And a place they still had to remain faithful to God. Now the Israelites were not faithful, the majority of them. Um, and that's the reason they wandered for 40 years. Because the majority of them did not keep their faith. 
And the majority of them that had passed through the Red Sea did not enter the promised land. And so that's a warning for us today. And the book of Hebrews really brings out that warning for us today. In verse, uh, or chapter 3 and verse 16, the author writes, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The majority of the Israelites didn't enter the promised land. Those that had passed through the Red Sea. The majority of them died in the wilderness. Why? Because they were disobedient. They didn't remain faithful. After all that God had done, them, done for them to save them from slavery, all the miracles he had done, the operation of God to bring them through the Red Sea, to save them, provide for them, they did not remain faithful. And over and over in, in, in uh, the ex book of Exodus and the following uh, historical books, you can read about the Israelites complaining and, and failing and, and, and wanting, they even mentioned, well, wait, I want to go back to Egypt. You know, let's go back to Egypt. It was better there. And they complain in that way. They want to go back and they don't know what they're saying. They're not speaking in the right mind. But they're failing over and over. When times get tough, they forget God and they go back to their past life. That's a warning for us today. Because when we're baptized, that's not it. We're not done. We're not in the promised land. We're in the wilderness. And the wilderness is this life. And it's full, still full of temptation. And the, the devil will tempt us, especially early on when we start our journey, and tempt us to go back to our past life. And he will say, it's better back there. You shouldn't be here. Go back to the way you used to be. And we'll be tempted to do so. And that's true for the rest of our life. We are still tempted to not remain faithful to God. And unfortunately, so many people did not remain faithful in the Old Testament. And perhaps that is true today. There are many who will not remain faithful. And I can think of many examples of, of people, especially early on when, when they're baptized, they don't remain faithful. And early on, maybe they have a zeal and a passion, but that fades and they go back to um, their former life. And that's what the devil tried to do uh, with Jesus. Right after he was baptized in the wilderness, he tempted him in a weak, uh, seemingly weak moment. But Jesus was triumphant. And so we are warned to remain faithful to God. 1 Peter 2 verse 11 says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you. In other words, I urge you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Peter calls us strangers and pilgrims. We're sojourners. We're travelers. This world is not our home as we sing. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so we're traveling through this place of wilderness, this place of sin, this place of trial. And you can see that the Israelites, when they passed through, there were armies, there was, there was events, there was a lack of food and water, all these temptations. They were tempted by their former life. From all directions, we're tempted in the same way in this life. And Peter says, I urge you as pilgrims in this life, keep the faith. Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against your soul. Don't go back to your former life. It's not better there. 
Keep the faith. Abstain from the lust and sins and temptations of this world. Hebrews 10 verse 26 continues this analogy and, and um, this comparison. Uh, 10 verse 26 says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. So the writer here says, if we sin willfully, if we go back to a place where we're back uh, to a place where we're a slave to sin, we're willfully sinning, we've gone back to our former life, we're not striving against sin, we're just sinning willfully, and we're a slave to sin. If we go back to that place, the sacrifice of Jesus has no more effect upon us. It doesn't have any more effect. There remains no more sacrifice for sins. It doesn't affect us anymore because we've rejected Christ by going back to sin and by sinning willfully and becoming a slave to sin. Now, that's different than um, sinning uh, from time to time as Christians. As Christians, we need to make Jesus the Lord of our life, walking in the light, and, and we confess our sins. He is faithful to forgive our sins. But if we truly reject Jesus and go back to a place of sin, back to Egypt, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Then he talks about how people under the Mosaical law would die without mercy if they violated the law. Um, and he says, uh, how, how much worse punishment would it be for us to reject Jesus, to trot in underfoot, to um, stamp underfoot, to walk over the Son of God uh, and count the blood of the covenant an unholy thing? How much worse if we reject Jesus, if we've been sanctified, we've been freed from slavery of sin, if we reject Jesus, the ultimate Savior, will be so much worse punishment than the physical death that uh, those who violated the Mosaical law. So we need to make sure we don't go back to that place uh, of sin and worldliness. Last point I have, entering the promised land. Those that were faithful and the children of those who weren't as faithful, uh, eventually they entered the promised land. They uh, traveled through the wilderness 40 years. Moses wasn't able to enter because he was not perfect and he did something that caused him to not, uh, God did not allow him to enter um, because of his pride in one moment. Uh, but Joshua led the people into the promised land. So they finally entered the promised land. And those that remained faithful, Joshua, Caleb, entered the promised land. Uh, after passing through the wilderness for so long. That is certainly what can happen for us and should happen for us as Christians. Hebrews 4 verse 11 again makes this comparison. Verse 11 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, that heavenly rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's talking about the, those that fell in the wilderness. Uh, then verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
don't give up our confession to Jesus, our commitment in our baptism. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the writer here says, take the example of the Israelites who fell and who did not enter in the promised land. Take that to heart, because the same is true for us today. We're walking in the wilderness as pilgrims of God, as followers of Jesus today, and we need to strive to enter in that rest. We need to strive every day not to go back to a place of sin, because we don't want to fall by the same sort of disobedience. We need to make sure we're entering that promised land, that we're continuing every day to live and remain faithful to God so that we can have the assurance of the salvation of our souls. And that's to enter that rest, that heavenly rest forever. And then he explains how we can really have that assurance and how it was made possible, and that was through Jesus. You see, Jesus came out of Egypt. Jesus was baptized. Jesus went into the wilderness. Jesus was tempted by the devil. Jesus lived his life up until the end without sin. Jesus never gave in to the temptations in the wilderness. Jesus never gave in. He was victorious, and when he was sacrificed, he entered into that promised land. He entered into heaven itself for us. He blazed that trail for us so that we could follow in his steps and enter into that spiritual rest forever. Jesus is the reason we can do that. And he, the reason is because he was triumphant and he never sinned, but he understands our sins and he can forgive us our sins if we just commit to him and follow him. And because of him, we can draw near to the throne of God, the throne of grace, and find mercy and grace and help in the time of need. We can cry out to God, Lord, help us. Help us free us from the slavery of sin and of this life, the trials of this life, the consequences of sin. Give us that peace. Give us that deliverance. Help us reach the promised land. We can do that because of Jesus. So I think there's a lot of similarities between uh, Matthew chapter 2, 3, and 4, and uh, the story of, uh, or the event of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. And I think perhaps these are the reasons why Hosea prophesied that out of Egypt have I called my son. And how that relates to Jesus. We talked about the Exodus coming out of a place of sin and worldliness, out of Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea, which is similar to baptism and initiation, the start of a commitment to God. And then we talked about the wilderness. Baptism's the start of it. The wilderness is the life and trial we must remain faithful in to finally enter into that promised land. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, again, out of Egypt have I called my son. I want to add a third layer uh, to this prophecy because I think this prophecy applies to you today. Out of Egypt, God has called you. Out of a place of worldliness and sin and despair and slavery, God has called you today. And the question is, will you answer that call? Will you answer the call to come out of Egypt, out of this world, and truly, fully commit your life to the deliverer of your soul to Jesus, and finally enter in the promised land when our time here is done. Answer the call today if you haven't. 
Uh, if you find yourself in a place of despair or, or uh, uh, slavery to sin, you're caught in sin and you can't get out, uh, there's someone who can get you out of that, and that's Jesus. Answer that call today. God has given you the deliverer, and he wants you to come to him. Uh, if you need to be baptized this morning, you can do that, and we can assist you in that. Or if you need the prayers of the church, we invite you to please come as we stand and sing.